Womanhood is not a monolith. There are as many ways to be a woman as there are stars in the sky. Trying to pass out a boundary definition for womanhood is like trying to cup the ocean in your hands. Gender isn't real. We are two small bozos from a small island at the bottom of the planet. And you should never take our advice because it will honestly include a lot more murder than is legally encouraged. a podcast about dangerous ladies presented by two relatively harmless ones. My name is Bonnie Mary Liston. And I'm Emma Skalitsky. And are we that harmless, Bonnie? No, we are very, very dangerous. I, for example, have a degree in ancient history, history and linguistics, and then a master's in journalism, media and communications. And you are an English major. And and a a published playwright. Published playwright, Emma Skalitsky, yes. And she does carry a knife almost everywhere, but it is legal if any police are listening. (laughs) Are you just outing me to the law, Bonnie Mary Liston? No, I told the police it was legal. I'm trying to make our listeners respect you. Yes, it is legal. I use it for my job, which uh, is probably a fair segue because Bonnie and I both work in theatre. We do. And uh, we recently did a play together, and uh, shortly after that, the world ended. No, no more theatre. No, no more theatre. Um, I actually feel very pleased we got through our entire run uh, in January. I know, right? We, we very narrowly missed that. The whole unpleasantness. Uh, but thing. because we will die without attention, uh, we have started a podcast to fill yes. these lonely hours. Now, I know you might be thinking, oh, God, not another podcast started by the pandemic. I, for one, have seen a number of tweets being like, please, if you're thinking of doing it, don't. Nothing makes me want to do something more. I was like, these tweets can't stop me because I can't read. It's true. I will rise to the challenge. But also, um, Bonnie and I have talked about starting a podcast for a few years. Yeah. now that we're both uh, cooped up at home and time isn't real anymore, it just seemed like the right time to start that podcast. And we were trying to think of a topic that we are both very passionate about and could oh, talk yes. maybe endlessly about, and we decided that was women. Women. Hell Love yeah. Love those bitches. Now, as we said at the start of the podcast, uh, it's not our uh, desire to define what it means to be a woman. Uh, we are two humble bozos. We In really fact, don't know. We have no idea what a woman is. That's why we need a podcast to try and pass out these these questions. Yeah. What is woman? Anything, really. And uh, honestly, I don't even know who I am. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's important that if you're listening and you're wondering yourself, we don't want any listeners to feel like we're telling them what it means to, to identify as any gender, really. No, and, uh, I mean, particularly honestly, listen to us, but don't listen to us. Don't but do listen, listen to, to us. us. And I mean, if we say anything uh, that you disagree with, please have a conversation with us. I'm always keen to learn. Feel free and to call us out. Hell yeah. I, mean, I do I'm, not want to go the way of so many old feminists I admire and just become terrible when I'm old. <laughs> I need the youth to tell me all the new concepts. I know. So but that aside, what are we talking about today? Well, Bonnie, today we are talking about Salome. Oh, yeah, the play we were in together. Hell uh, yeah. Emma and I put on a production of Oscar Wilde's Salome, or Salome. We never figured out how it was pronounced, even on opening night. Um, <laughs> I, I sort of figured, based on different videos and audios and discussions I listened to, that both pronunciations are equally valid, so that's very cool. nice. That's good, because I think we used both in the play. I always kind of rationalised it as Herod was so mean he didn't know how to pronounce my name. Uh, And I played uh, Salome because my ego is unbound. Also, I think in a a very strong and real way, you are Salome. (laughs) Once again, I'm going to be completely unbiased in this report. I mean, Salome did nothing wrong ever, uh, and that's just a fact, as you will discover. So the story of Salome contains... uh, Sexualized violence, regular violence, some incestual themes, all of which can be very upsetting to people. 
Uh, so just forewarn yourselves and if that's something you're not comfortable with. As well as that, I would say later on we're going to discuss ideas of um, anti-Semitism and attitudes against sex workers and, and women that are, you know, not fair and very unsavoury. So if, if any of that at all troubles you or causes stress or brings up trauma, you know, please be aware it's coming up. I would never want to make anyone uncomfortable. So the beginning question is obviously who is Salome? Well, uh, for those of you who don't know, Salome is a character from the New Testament of the Bible. Um, now, she appears twice in the Bible, first of all in um, the Gospel of Mark and then in the Gospel of Matthew. Bonnie, would you like to read Mark's account? It's in Mark's account, six. sure thing. Yeah. 6, 21 to 28. A convenient day arrived when Herod spread an evening meal on his birthday for his high officials and the military commanders and the most prominent men of Galilee. The daughter of Herodias came in and danced, pleasing Herod and those dining with him. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Yes, he swore to her, whatever you ask me for, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She immediately rushed into the king and made her request, saying, I want you to give me right away on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Though this deeply grieved him, the king did not want to disregard her request because of his oath and the guests. So the king immediately sent a bodyguard and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went off and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, which is chapter 14, 6 to 11. But on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask of him. But she, being instructed before by her mother, said, Give me here in a dish the head of John the Baptist. And the king was struck sad, yet because of his oath, and for them that sat with him at the table, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought in a dish, and it was given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. So, Bonnie, can you summarise the story of Salome as your average listener is likely to know it? Sure. So there's this uh, king, not officially a king, a ruler named Herod. It is his birthday. Uh, and he has a wife named Herodias, which is kind of weird. Not the weirdest thing about their marriage, uh, because Herodias used to be his older brother's wife. He overthrew his brother and he remarried his wife, which at the time was a little bit of a cultural no-no. Uh, there is a prophet named John the Baptist who's getting pretty big uh, on the prophet scene, and he has been very vocally critical of this decision and very rude about Herodias herself, so she wants to killed. Herod does not want to do this because he doesn't want to anger the prophet's followers. Instead, he has interned him in jail, a kind of uh, compromise, great ruling there. Unfortunately, uh, Herodias has a daughter from her first marriage named Salome, uh, and Herod is a creep, uh, and he uh, kind of digs Salome. He'd maybe like to complete the set of uh, mothers and daughters. I don't like this. However, um, on his birthday, he's having a big birthday bash, Salome does a dance of interpretive nature. Uh, and at the end, he's like, that dance was so good. I'll grant you a boon. Anything your heart desires up to the half of my kingdom. And she is like, I hate being put on the spot. She asks her mother what she thinks she should ask for. Her mother tells her to ask for the head of John the Baptist in revenge uh, for all that nasty stuff he's been saying. So she goes back. She says, I would like the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. Um, and Herod's like, oh, uh, no, unfortunately he has sworn this oath to give her anything she wants in front of a huge crowd of guests, all his best friends at his birthday party. And so he cannot turn back on his word regretfully. Uh, well, he's regretfully, I don't care. Uh, he orders the death of John the Baptist. The head is brought to Salome. Um, and here is where tradition ends. She makes out with it or doesn't, uh, depending on how nasty you like it. Either way, his body is carried away by his, um, his followers, his disciples. He is canonized as John the Baptist, 
big man amongst Christians. Mm. Mm. Where this differs, I, sp- I suppose, in the Oscar Wilde story is that Salome wants the head of John the Baptist. Yes, her mother is actually telling her not to dance, and it's Salome's idea to dance because she wants the head of John the Baptist in revenge for him rebuffing her amorous advances. Mm. And then following her gaining of the head, as you mentioned, depending on how nasty you like it, she then kisses the severed head, at which point in Oscar Wilde's play, Herod is so disgusted, he calls for her immediate death and all of the soldiers at this party rush upon her and crush her with their shield. Yeah, and I was like, harsh but fair, but that's such bullshit. <laughs> it's it's definitely a a mean thing to do, let's say. You shouldn't crush people under your shields. Absolutely not. Shields are for protection, not murder. Shields are for protection, not murder. So you might have noticed Salome is not named in the Bible. Yeah. Who's Salome then? Who's Salome? Where does that come from? Largely the Bible is considered as a cultural text rather than historical text. It is a compilation of the Jewish and then the Christian people's cultural heritage and stories. But during this period, historical texts did exist. And uh, Herod was actually a pretty uh, historically relevant guy. Other things he did, including, uh, you know, killing Jesus. He's that Herod. I understand it's confusing because there are a lot of Herods, but he's that Herod. Uh, So people did write books about him. Uh, One man who did this was uh, a Jewish and Roman kind of a a dual cultured historian called Josephus. uh, And he wrote a book called Jewish Antiquities um, in the year 94, so the first century AD. Which I just like to point out is really interesting because he's a contemporary of both Mark and Matthew. Yeah. So this is this text, this historical text, is being written at the same time as the New Testament. Yes, uh, but it's from a completely different perspective because he was a Roman citizen, so he was writing about kind of Jewish culture and heritage for a Roman point of view. And what he did mm-hmm. is he wrote about Herod. Uh, this specific Herod is Herod Antipas. Uh, so Herod, the Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, he was the last Herod king, and then he had four sons, all named Herod, and they were split up into four parts of each of his kingdom. They were called tetrarchs, as in one of four. Uh, He Mm -hmm. wrote about Herod Antipasses, who once again is the king that Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to and he was like, get out of here. I am obviously always picturing him as the Herod from Jesus Christ Superstar, the film, which is not not very uh, serious, but... Uh, he, they have written down, uh, you know, married his brother's wife and the daughter is Salome in that text. So people have been able to draw the clues between Herod, Herodias, Salome. That's probably who they're talking about. However, yes. um, this name was not always kind of reliably assigned to the dancing girl until the 15th and then the 18th century because Salome is not necessarily a historical figure. How would you describe her, Emma? Yeah, the the thing is, uh, a lot of the New Testament is allegorical, and it's uh, it's ad- an adaptation of pre-existing oral storytelling traditions. So the the story of of Salome or the dancing girl dancing and getting the head of John the Baptist directly mirrors the death of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ's death directly mirrors earlier sacrificial traditions where um, they would kill a lamb in order to, I'm going to generalise this, but basically as a kind of way of gaining forgiveness. Um, that's probably a, a terrible bastardization. The lamb of, the, the lamb of God, the lamb of, the lamb of God. Mm. So the, the thing is, uh, whilst we know these historical figures existed, whether these stories are allegorical or completely historical, either way, we're not quite sure, but it doesn't really matter because what's come out of it is this kind of ever-evolving myth that is absolutely sick. Yes. Now, I also want to point out we have some later medieval historical texts that also reference Salome. So as you mentioned, she's first named in um, Josephus' Jewish Antiquities. 
Now, uh, as well as that, it's mentioned that Salome lived for quite a long time. If you guys are familiar with the Oscar Wilde play, you might think, wait, doesn't she, like, die at the end of that story? I know. Not so. When I found out she doesn't die in the John the Baptist incident in kind of the biblical story, I got so mad at Oscar Wilde. I'm like, you kill the femme fatale at the end. What is this, a 1930s noir film under the Hayes Code where bad behaviour has to be punished? (laughs) Well, I guess, like, the thing is... It's it's way more dramatically interesting to have your heroine die, <laughs> basically punished for her sexuality at the end of the story. I know, it um, would be kind of a weaker ending if she just kind of made out with the head and everyone was like, that was weird. But yeah, she's like, all right, guys, I'm going to go have a ciggy on the balcony, see y'all mm. later. I'm bringing the head with me. Yeah, it's mine now. I'm going to carry it around with me wherever I go. Didn't, uh, wasn't there a queen that did that, Joanna the Mad, or was it her whole husband's body? I don't think I know this story. It's like Tudor era. I think she's um, the queen of Spain, but she was from England, and her husband died, and they said she carried his body around with him. But it may have been one of those instances yeah. where they accused a woman of being mad because she had a very strong political um, position as a widow queen. Yeah, kind of retroactively creating like a slander story mm. against her. That's still like a, an amazing image. I would like to briefly mention some of the other historical stuff we get about Salome from uh, not only Josephus but also the medieval period. Go for so, it. first of all, um, we get a little bit of information about Salome's later life. As we mentioned, she is killed in the Oscar Wilde text, but she's not killed according to history. So, yeah, Josephus writes that Salome married the Tetrarch Philip, who is apparently like her great great uncle. So, I she did not have a lot of luck in the adult male figures in her family. No, she really, really didn't. Now, I I hope because there are a lot of names and it's not necessarily clarified who is who that maybe it was a different Philip, but we're not quite sure. She then apparently in AD 54 remarried a man called Aristobulus. Nice. After that, we get a lot of information about Herod and Herodias. They're apparently exiled during the time of Caligula. Yes, that Caligula. Uh, According to a theologian called Cornelius A. Lapida in the late 1500s, who himself is claiming to be citing a man called um, St. Nicephorus of Constantinople in AD uh, 829, Caligula deposed Herod in AD 39. So actually not that long before Josephus wrote Jewish antiquities. But they were already antique. Yes. Yes, indeed. Within, what, like 60 years you become antique. Well, yeah. I mean, life expectancy alone. What happened when uh, Caligula (laughs) deposed Herod? So, Caligula deposes Herod in the year 39 AD. Now, they are sent to Gaul in exile. Now, it's said that sometime after this, we are told that she marries a guy called Aristobulus in, in 54 AD. So mm. some, sometime around then, according to St. Nicephorus, she's following her parents into exile in Gaul. She's crossing an icy lake and she slips and she falls. And as she falls, she kind of lands through, she goes through the ice and she lands up to her shoulders and she's like struggling. And in one version of the legend, it's called like the, the, the dance. So it's obviously referencing the biblical tale. And as she's struggling up to her shoulders, this, this sheet of ice basically slides against her and decapitates her. So I'm not sure if that's how ice works, but I get the parallel they were going it for. It sounds there. very cinematic. But, yeah. yeah, this is definitely more legend than historically provable, purely because the earliest documented reference of it is, like, 800 years after Jewish antiquities. That's a little while. So I think you can, or serious, make the argument that it's it's an, a poetic, like, piece of folklore. It's mirroring the original tale in the Gospel of Mark. Mm. Oh, she could have died just from falling into the lake because people in the past were so weak. They'd die of anything. To be fair, I'd probably die if I fell in an icy lake. It's cold, man. Yeah, you would. I am You're a little lady. I'm a Ironically, that means I cannot be killed by the cold because I'm, I'm too uh, stubborn. <laughs> you just refuse. You'd be, like, floating in the water like, no. No. I'd be like, it gets this cold on the Gold Coast. We just don't wear wetsuits about it, guys. <laughs> Come on, I'm real tough. I'm what would be tough. what would be like the acceptable level at which you would go, yeah, okay, I'll die now? 
if I was in Antarctica, right, yeah. and then one of my best friends had fallen off a cliff oh. uh, and we were out of supplies and I had to, if I was holding the knife and I had to look into a husky's eyes, I'd be like, I have I'm to dead. die now. I cannot so kill and eat this husky. What you're telling me is if you were Douglas Mawson, you would be like, no, nah, I'm out. I draw a line there. I would probably kill and eat my fellow scientist and be like, we, we made it, all 69 huskies. <laughs> nice. I don't think they had 69 huskies, but actually Ernest Shackleton did have 69 huskies oh, the day nice. he started eating them. Oh, man. I would just cuddle all those huskies. Their warmth would carry me all the way exactly. back. Um, but speaking of uh, information about Salome that comes later in her life that is probably not historically accurate, I believe there is also an apocryphal yep. gospel, the Gospel of Bartholomew, Uh, which suggests that Salome was actually at the tomb when Jesus went missing uh, on Easter Sunday. Monday? Monday? Sunday. No, Sunday he's risen, I guess. This could be just one of the problems that there are only four names because they just mention a woman named Salome. Yeah, I think Bartholomew calls her Salome the Temptress, which is why there's been some conjecture about her being the Salome of uh, the death of John the Baptist. I actually would love it if it was Salome because in the Oscar Wilde play, she's like, would love to see that D to John the Baptist. And he's like, you should be waiting for the The D of Jesus. Holy embrace of Christ. (laughs) The holy embrace of Christ, which is very PG or even G, it's for all audiences. Um, Yes. And she's like, not feeling it. So I'd love it if she was just there and Jesus rose from the dead and she's like still not feeling it and she's wearing like a little widow's veil and she puts out her cigarette on the Well, okay, now here's here's the thing. I genuinely agree because in a number of other biblical tales, characters get their moral salvation. Like Pontius Pilate becomes a Christian later in life. Mm. So it doesn't seem, I guess, fair to me that Salome, who actually in the original biblical verse is is not that active of a character. She's not the one that actually wants the head of John the Baptist. Her mother Herodias does. So, and I mean, I love Herodias. And Herodias like, also did nothing girl. wrong, obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah obviously. But um, Salome was, did even less wrong. Yeah, she's I, a child. I actually, I'd like to point out, if I can find it, um, in the original Greek version of the Bible, um, when they describe Salome, they use the word chorosion. I I'm not sure that's the pronunciation. I apologize. It would be like Corinthian, yeah. There are no um, silent letters in Greek, so it's always uh, Slavic. For those who maybe know more than me, it's spelt um, K-O-R-A-S-I-O-N, and it literally translates to little girl. So even though later in in depictions of her in art, uh, you know, paintings, plays, literature, she's portrayed as this this adult woman, this temptress. In fact, in in Mark and Matthew, she's a little girl. Yeah, and there's nothing inherently sexual. I mean, people suggest that um, because she does a dance and everyone's really pleased that she's an adult. But if you think about it, doing a dance at somebody else's birthday party that everyone is forced to watch and then clap at is peak child behavior that's like a six-year-old being like i've prepared a song we're all gonna listen now and then she's like and i was like the head of john the baptist this is gonna sound like a completely irrelevant anecdote but my aunt tells this story of when she was about to marry my uncle nigel they like came over and they didn't live in tassie so i very very rarely saw them and i'd get so excited when they were over and she had i think they'd come down to announce that they were about to get married and they wanted to ask me flower girl and I just came out covered in tull and started doing this, like, like undulating dance. I was, like, seven years old, like, dragging the tull over everyone in my family and, like, you know, when children sing and they're like, la, 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 la. and um, paying all this attention to them. And, and later on, my Auntie Rosie Ann was like, that was so horrifyingly... Aww. No, that is a peak new story she like 10 years later she was like it was like watching the dance of the seven veils like we were (gasps) sitting there like what are you doing child parallels parallels i Um, thought that what we were talking about was a really good transition to one of kind of our big themes of this episode which is that uh salome as a character uh occupies this very uh, strange space because it falls very heavily into the kind of Madonna whore complex 
but um, is hard to place within it and so has caused a lot of consternation, uh, particularly amongst male scholars. They're like, she's actually the virgin, no, she's actually the whore. And they're like, could a woman be both? Could a woman oh, not fit within a binary? Obviously not. <laughs> Women are only within binaries, and that's a quote I from would... me. But <laughs> what they they try to do is uh, Bram Dijkstra. Dijkstra. It's fine. Uh, Bram Dijkstra. Bam Dijkstra calls her the virgin whore. He's like, it's all right, guys, I made a new uh, dichotomy for her to evolve in. And that is when uh, kind of purity, a pure, uh, chaste young woman, clear as the virgin snow, is perversely tainted by lustful desires. So it's even more tragic than a whore because she had the perfection. And the, the, blah, blah. I can't even finish it. I, um, I know that I know exactly that feel. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Bram Dijkstra is the author of Idols of Perversity. Wait, have you read it, Bonnie? No. Um, absolutely recommend. So Bram Dijkstra is this uh, amazing, like, arts scholar, and he wrote this whole book called Idols of Perversity, which tracks, like, every archetype and icon throughout the, a period of time called the fin de siècle, which is basically the 1800s. It's the turn of the century or the end of the century. And during this time, a lot of art was obsessed with different female figures throughout storytelling history. Ophelia, Medusa, Salome, Salambo, um, Ishtar. I, I mean, I could probably go on and on and on forever. So he he tracks all the different artistic trends across this century and talks about the different kind of misogynistic and biased kind of beliefs that fed into all the different female characters and, and the, the different archetypes. So maybe in a future episode we'll talk about um, Ophelia from Hamlet. We probably will. We probably will. Emma has um, a chest tattoo dedicated to Ophelia. I do to once, to once again put her on blast. Uh, it's not blast, no shame. You can put me on blast at some point. Uh, I know, I, I, I would never. Honey, it's I fucking dope, never. though. Oh, how much swearing are we doing in this? Oh, a little bit, surely. Li- PG, one swears. PG-13, <laughs> I'm um, Wolverine. What was I going to say? Dijkstra. Yeah, yeah Dijk- Dijkstra. Honestly, he's amazing, and he just, he's so... Uh, poetically characterizes a lot of these kind of erroneous beliefs that fed into the development of different archetypes. So for example, with Ophelia, he talks about, there was this thing called the cult of in, 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 and pronounce it. No, invalidism. Oh, the cult of invalidism. Uh, like the romanticization of the sick and the weak. Exactly. Thank you very much. Yeah. Like, um, how they like idolize tuberculosis because you would become so pale and, and flushed and rosy and they're yeah. like, that's hot. That's literally it. Uh, Ophelia falls exactly into that category. And uh, Salome falls into this other category, which is this kind of um, fetishization of the femme fatale. Uh, he also describes artists that call her the headhuntress. Or the, the, there's a, um, a thing, and this is very binary. I completely acknowledge that. But there's this other thing, which is basically that... Um, and it's kind of Freudian as well that Salome and a lot of other kind of characters in the same, the same group, I guess, uh, they are emblematic of castration because the heading is obviously comparable, I guess. Because men think from their dicks anyway, so. <laughs> so I'm going to read a quote from Bram Jigstra, and then I think we, we might actually jump back to a little bit more medieval stuff. Nice. I'd just like to read this quote by Bram Jigstra because I think it really succinctly summarises kind of a lot of the stuff we were talking about with binaries. Like, you know, the Madonna whore binary. Is Salome an adult or a child? Is she a virgin? Is she sensual? Does she hate John the Baptist? Does she desire him? So um, in this quote, he's describing Gustav Klimt, did a painting called, um, it's called Judith, but it's also called Salome. There are different instances of it having different names. So when he's describing it, he says, Klimt's Salome forward slash Judith is a heady mixture of vampire lore, high fashion, period's obsession with the notion that the headhuntress had desired to obtain hands-on knowledge of John the Baptist's head. The theme of Salome as a bestial virgin Jewess, which I know is, is quite a... Um, big yikes. Big yikes, yeah. Whose dance revived the dead embers of carnal life. Well... 
there is a lot of comparison, not within the context of their stories, but in the context of their kind of afterlives to be made between Judith and Salome. Uh, because in art history, you'll often find there's an inability to distinguish between them sometimes because they're obviously both most commonly depicted uh, with a man's head. Generally, they have their kind of signature props, uh, which is actually quite a common thing in art history that because so many stories are told and told over again, the way you identify what this painting of a naked lady is uh, depicting is with what prop she has. So Salome has a head and a platter, and Judith has a head and a sword, and usually a female friend, so good for her. But if you've just got a beautiful woman holding a head, you're like, is it Judith, is it Salome? And it's interesting that... Over time, Judith has become kind of more and more heroized while at the obverse has happened to Salome. They both started in this kind of gray space of being a biblical woman loosely connected with sex and, I guess, beheading. Uh, but over time, people like, Judith literally did nothing wrong. She saved her people. And over time, people are like, you know what? Slutty, slut, <laughs> like Salome. Can you explain maybe in a little bit more detail who Judith is? Of course. Uh, Judith is a biblical heroine from the Old Testament. Her city was under siege by a general called uh, Holofernes, and Mm -hmm. she was a widow, so she had already had sex, but within the bounds of marriage. Uh, So Mm -hmm. the widow is often quite a kind of uh, heady sexual figure because you're like, she knows how to do it, but she's not a slut. More bad language, I'm afraid. Uh, What she did is she went out to the enemy camp and she said, hello, I'm a very sexy, mature woman. I'm wearing my best jewels. I would like to speak to the general. And all the soldiers went hubba hubba. Um, And she went to the general's tent. They dined together. They had a lovely evening. He was like, I think I'm going to get some. And then when he was very sleepy, she took out a sword and she sliced off his head. Wow. Hell yeah. Handmen. Hell yeah. And then she actually snuck it out of the enemy camp uh, in a bag that she said contained her menstrual rags. They were like, a lot of blood there. And she's like, time of the month. And they were like, ew, gross. Um, <laughs> and then she went back to her city and she's like, did it. And they were like, damn, Judith. So damn. that's Judith. Um, some of you art history buffs out here might already be familiar with Judith because there's a famous painting by Artemisia Gentileschi called Judith Beheading Holofernes, which legend has it uh, has this whole backstory where um, Artemisia Gentileschi is uh, using it to express a trauma that she experienced to do with sexual assault. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Judith and Salome would both uh, fall into a category that I would like to define called art hoes. But before I get on to my manifesto, I think uh, you had something to say in that they're both uh, Jewish heroines and that the legacy of Salome has some intersectional uh, roots with uh, anti-Semitism uh, across time. Yeah, like yeah. So this is obviously quite a difficult topic to talk about, but I just think it's worth a tiny, tiny little note. Um, so we're jumping ahead a little bit to uh, the 1800s, which is really when Salome became the, the mythological figure we know her as today, kind of all of the art, all of the stories, all of the plays. Whilst she was named in an ancient historical text, uh, it was only really cemented when um, Gustav, um, I believe his surname's pronounced Flaubert, but he wrote a short story called Herodias, which was the first instance where her name canonically became uh, Salome. Mm, I'd say in the 1500s, she's a minor character. By the 1800s, she becomes the main character of her own story. Ironically Absolutely. enough, in a short story named after her mother. Exactly, exactly. Now, uh, we're going to talk a lot about the art of the 1800s because that's kind of really the main centre of the Salome myth. But I, I just want to caveat that with the acknowledgement that something else that was happening during the 1800s was there was a lot of um, secularisation, uh, people were kind of leaving the church. But what that meant was anti-Semitism had existed as a, a thing where some people kind of could marginalise the Jews because they saw them as the old version of what they had become. But as secularization happened, it meant that uh, a lot of a lot of anti-Semitic people could no longer base that in the fact that they felt like they were kind of a moral superior in belief. So they started looking at racial qualities. So this is kind of one of the, I mean, this has existed for a really long time, but this is kind of one of the prominent instances where um, anti-Semitism becomes 
very much about rest. Mm. Now, the reason I bring that up, Salome is kind of innately tied in with a lot of that because her art is coming out at the same time. So in a lot of anti-Semitic texts, Salome became the typical kind of coded Jewish woman. She's dark-eyed, she's exotic, she's a temptress. And the more she's depicted as such, the more it leads people to believe that these are qualities of Jewish women. So I want to give you an example. Um, a man called Oscar Paniza. I'm going to say Oscar Paniza. Oscar Paniza. He wrote a drama called The Council of Love in 1895. And in this play, the devil, who is coded as a Jewish man in a, a really quite offensive way, chooses Salome to be the mother of syphilis, which was a disease which... Uh, is very, very, has a very complicated history, but part of that history is that it was blamed on Jewish people. So she's coded as this beautiful temptress who brings syphilis into the world. That is just such a huge accumulation of yeeks. Like, yeah, I know, right? Every now, part of that, I was like, that is bad. Now, I don't like that. It carries on, Bonnie, because the beautiful divine Sarah Bernhard do you know Sarah Bernhardt? I, I know and I love Sarah Bernhardt. Female actress during the 1800s. She played Hamlet, would you believe? <gasps> She's uh, an amazing uh, actress. If you don't know Sarah Bernhardt, you must look her up. She's incredible. Um, she was a Jewish woman. So she was actually originally meant to play Salome in Oscar Wilde's play before it was banned in Britain in 1892. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Mm. But uh, Sarah Bernhard was compared to Salome a lot over the course of her life, not just because she was meant to play her. So first of all, she was already the victim of a lot of anti-Semitism. So there are actually plays, really inflammatory plays written about her, which I really don't feel like naming because they suck. But um, if you're curious, I can give you sources. Uh, nah, fuck them. Just Google yeah, exactly. Sarah Bernhardt please, and then don't yeah. Google these plays. Why would you no, want to see please them? Please take them with a grain of salt. So they purport to publish real letters she wrote, but they just slander her a lot. They're, they're trying to kind of make her seem, like, seductive and a liar and they're just very, very problematic. So I really wouldn't recommend looking them up. What I will tell you about these plays is that in one of them she writes letters where she's exploring her Jewish heritage and over the course of that she compares herself to biblical femme fatales like Esther, like Herodias and like Judith. Now I'd like to just emphasise that she probably didn't really write this, probably fiction that was accredited to her. Regardless, you can see that she's already been compared to biblical characters within the same sphere as Salome. As well as that, there was a big uh, scandal, I guess, during Sarah Bernhardt's life where a painter called Hans Mackart actually withdrew a portrait he was painting of Bernhardt from a major art exhibition because of an unnamed scandal. However, rumour has it that the painting was, and this is in quotes, too yellow. Now, it's worth noting that yellowness is a very kind of offensive, uh, racialized statement against the colour of Jewish people's skin. Sarah Bernhardt allegedly wrote to uh, Hans Mackart and said yellow, on yellow was the colour of Henri uh, Renault's images when he painted his Salome. Why shouldn't the famed Sarah not also be permitted to be yellow? Now, I'd also just like to stress again, this is alleged writing. There's no evidence that Sarah Bernhardt wrote this. It could be a very anti-Semitic spin. The point of me saying all of this is just to really stress that we're talking about a time period where as much as we love Salome and we love talking about kind of her whole history, we can't get away from the fact that there's a visibility of, you know, Salome and Sarah Bernhardt and it's reflected in a very specific debate about the depictions of Jewish people. Mm. So I think that's worth acknowledging. Yeah, because one of the many ways that women is not a monolith is that women of different uh, races or cultural heritage face uh, sex and misogyny in different ways that are also racialized. Absolutely. Now, with all of that in mind, I might talk a little bit about how Salome was slandered, maybe, in the medieval period. Shall we do that for a little bit? We can do that. Go for it. So 
There are a couple of medieval interpretations of Salome. As Bonnie said earlier, she really comes to the forefront in the 1800s, but during the medieval period, uh, she's written about quite a little bit. Thomas Aquinas wrote that Satan danced in the person of a damsel, that she was a malignant woman. Other medieval sources called her shameful, detestable, an insane woman. You really get the picture. Not nice. Not nice at all. However, at the same time, there's also a a Roman Catholic allegory that she's actually a symbol of the hope of salvation. The reason for this is she delivers the sacrificial head of John the Baptist, who is uh, a mirror of Christ, to her blasphemic mother. Mm. They're real. mm. Okay. Yeah, I I haven't read the allegory. I'm sure they might pull it off. (laughs) It's nice. She's getting different work. In medieval art, she's depicted in something which is called the acrobatic pose. Uh, The acrobatic pose comes up in the 1800s as well. It's a dancer's pose, which is basically, um, it implies obscenity. It's kind of a a slight change. They can say this because medieval art, uh, I can say this as someone with a history degree, it's bad, it's not good. You've seen it. Everyone's got like (laughs) a huge forehead and side eye and they only knew how to paint the human body in like three poses, all of which are facing the canvas. The acrobatic pose is like legs crossed, arms out, and they're like, that's for sexy stuff. And you're like, get good. (laughs) Tag yourself, I am a medieval painting of a cat. A medieval painting of tiny ripped Jesus. (laughs) Um, I'd also like to add that there is another depiction of Salome from Amiens Cathedral, which is quite interesting because she's depicted swooning in this um, this image. She seems overcome by the horror of what she's done, which is really interesting because it's one of the very rare instances where she's uh, depicted hmm. kind of fondly. She's, as we said earlier, rarely offered salvation in any version of her story. So it's really interesting to know that even in the medieval times, there are a couple of instances where nuance. there's kind of a, a, a yeah, nuance, exactly. Now, let's get on to your manifesto, Bonnie, an art history hook. So there is a subcategory of kind of uh, pop culture female figure, which I would uh, term as the art history hoe. This is uh, often, quite often, biblical figures. It's women who have become uh, greater or their stories have evolved in the minds of uh, kind of the audience of pop culture as a result of the depiction in art history. Uh, Now, Judith is one of these women, as we've uh, discussed. She's depicted a lot. Salome is definitely one of these women. She was painted a lot, particularly during the 1800s. She was kind of a subject du jour. She was painted by Gustave Moreau, uh, Gustave Klimt, uh, so many people. No, so what happens is artists a long time love to draw sexy women and naked women. That's Art 101. Uh, But especially during periods (laughs) where kind of everyone was a bit more sexually repressed, if you paint a naked woman, you don't want to be called a pervert. So what you do is you paint a naked woman, then you say, this is a story from the Bible. And everyone's like, well, thank you for being so God-fearing and and thinking about the Bible. I love the naked woman in the corner. And they're like, thank you, favorite part. Yes, they do this as well with um, Greek mythology, don't they? They do. It's a huge thing. I saw this great sign um, in the Louvre not to brag, uh, that was like, this artist loved to paint the three graces mainly as an excuse to paint three naked women in one painting. Um, yeah, I feel like the logic of, of this is basically, oh, I'm not creepy, I'm an intellectual. Exactly. It's not porn, it's art. So with Salome, they kind of read, uh, you know, what they hear in the uh, medieval traditions of Salome, like it's a sensuous, temptress, uh, slutty dance, and they're like, fantastic I've always wanted to draw a slutty dancing woman so you get all (laughs) these paintings of Salome mid-dance post dance with the head and the platter she's always wearing some kind of exoticized uh, orientalist outfit if she's wearing anything at all Um, and this hugely impacts how Salome's story is told from then because it's inspired by the painting of Gustave Moreau, uh, that Heisman writes that she's no longer a merely a dancing girl. She is the symbolic incarnation of world old vice, the goddess of immortal hysteria, the curse of beauty, um, which I've seen uh, Moreau's paintings and they are not that sexy. So this guy was just mad horny. 
Um, it's interesting as well because in another painting of his called um, La Apparition, which is pretty much the same as the Salome dances before Herod painting you were just talking about. Uh, in that painting, um, Heisman's describes her as a true harlot, obedient to her passionate and cruel female temperament. And literally the only difference between Laparition and Salome dances before Herod is that she's wearing slightly less clothing. Oh, man, it's so predictable. But this is what's always <laughs> frustrated me about kind of the, the painting of a nude woman is that you see so many of them. But in so many, like, men are making all these excuses to paint naked women. Um, but in so many of them, like, the boobs, are, the nipples are, like, sheer. You see, like, the barest uh, hint of a shadow to represent the nipples. And obviously their downstairs area is a perfect white triangle. And I think this is kind of, I'm going off on a tangent here, I think it's emblematic of kind of the male gaze in that they are desperate to see a naked woman, but they don't want to deal with the reality of what a naked woman would look like. Uh, So basically what this is, is it's kind of a, a perfect incarnation of men who want to critique a woman for being sexual, but also look at a naked woman. That's why stories like Salome and the kind of the virgin whore dichotomy exist, uh, because there is this desire for sexuality but no way to appreciate it honestly so they have to appreciate it sensuously which leads to all kinds of twisted yeah and bad dynamics i think a really great example of that is any painting called vanity because it's yes. always a, a gorgeous woman she's you know she's often nude but she's holding a mirror and looking at it and it's a way of shaming her even though you painted it because you wanted to look at it. Like it's it's interesting uh, because I think the the gaze is like a huge a huge part of of the Salome story. There's this very much so paper called "Here's Looking at You, Kid: Empowering the Gaze in Salome," and it's by Linda and Michael Hutchin. And Linda Hutchin is this amazing adaptation theorist. I did a, a bit of reading on her during my honors degree. Just to flex. Um, nice. In 1998, they wrote this paper and uh, they just talk about kind of the gaze just across the whole of the, not just the Salome myth, but also Salome on stage. Um, Her different adaptions. Yes. We love some adaptation. That was really beautiful. Thanks. I'm here all week. <laughs> One of the cool things about the gaze in Salome is, um, I mean, it's it's not only is it everywhere, it's also very much embodied. So uh, we have stage versions. There's obviously Oscar Wilde's Salome, perhaps the most famous instance of her, but there's also Strauss's opera Salome. Which is based on a libretto by Wilde. Exactly. And in both we get the Dance of the Seven Veils. Now, the Dance of the Seven Veils doesn't actually exist prior to Oscar Wilde. He invented the phrase. He invented the uh, phrase. But it's, it's most likely kind of culturally inspired by narratives that have come before, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like the descent of the goddess Ishtar, um, who had to strip off uh, a veil at every kind of gate down to hell. And there were seven of them. And there were seven of them. Uh, and also uh, during this period of Oscar Wilde's writing, there was a, uh, a big uh, trend of Orientalism, a, a fetishization of the Middle East and the Far East, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, had a kind of a trend of sexy veil dances mm-hmm. uh, in his culture. So he got it from other places probably, but he is the first person to codify that name in conjunction with Salome's story, and that's had a huge kind of impact on how she's seen post-Wild. Exactly. And and what this means is that he kind of puts her dance front and centre on the stage. Mm. So her body, her physical body, is is given time. In the Strauss opera, it's ten whole minutes with no voice of just dance. I love that. I think it's so much more impactful in an opera than in a ballet form because like opera is all about singing and in this instance no it's time for the art of dance on stage yeah there's no voice I would also say it's the same for the stage play because it's it's the only time where no one's talking we're all looking at her when she's dancing I mean in the original story Herod is looking at her but now the audience is implicated in the looking as well um do you know Laura Mulvey at all Bonnie 
the uh, academic who coined uh, the male gaze, one of the most impactful articles of film criticism in the last 50 to 100 years. Yes, indeed. I know of her. You, you may, you've heard a little tale. We've chanced upon one another. Oh, yes. Uh, Laura Mulvey talks about how the gaze is basically a, um, a repressive tool. So it means that uh, people are represented in front of the gaze, uh, typically women are coded to strong visual and erotic impact, although I would argue that also applies to people of different cultures and backgrounds when they're fetishized. The, mm. the gaze kind of codes you in a way which she calls looked atness, which is basically implying that because you're, you're being pressed down upon by the gaze, you're coded in this way that makes you erotic in a strong visual way, it implies powerlessness. So those that are depicted for the gays often have no power. Uh, but you think Salome is uh, an exception or an interesting example of that? I think it's both. I definitely think, I mean, to talk about the Oscar Wilde play more broadly, throughout the play, Herod talks about how he's looking at her. Yes, it's a repeated theme. I would very much argue that he's, like, your horrible, uh, creepy, like, relative at a party. Or he's your creepy uncle, except within the text of the play, he's your creepy stepdad, which is worse. Exactly. It's your really... creepy stepdad who is also your uncle. When you actually think about the context, it's really, really disturbing. Um, yes. And, and he is looking at her for the whole play. He, you know, he says, sit on my lap, drink a little wine, eat my fruit so that I may have the marks of I love to see in the teeth. fruit the marks of your little teeth. Ugh. It's, it's really horrible. It's, it's really, really horrible. However, Salome's dance, although in the play she resists it to a point where she realises she can use it to get what she wants, there's an argument, and it's made a lot by Linda Hutchin, that actually Salome, for the first time gains power through the dance. She controls the terms of the gaze upon her. I would completely agree, because when I was playing Salome, we mentioned, like, during the production that it's kind of funny that the, the more clothes she takes off, uh, the more powerful she is. So at the end of the striptease, which otherwise could be a bit uncomfortable to perform, she is now the person with the most power on stage, and everyone else is now beholden to her terrifying whims. Exactly. Uh, an interesting, I don't know, situation. Exactly. I, I think a lot of that does have to do with um, trends in how people direct the dance as well. And you could you mm. could direct that dance so that you know she feels conflicted. But I I, I think the the way the dance is situated within the, in the text, it's on her terms. So she mm. she like particularly the the ones I've seen and and how you did it, Bonnie. It wasn't necessarily beauty for the sake of beauty. It was dancing for pleasure, your own pleasure. Is that fair to say? Yeah, uh, because uh, in Oscar Wilde, she's already made her deal, and the dance is after that. So she knows she's going to get what she wants. It's, it's partly a celebration mm. uh, of victory. Uh, as well as a bargaining tool. And in a way, I think it's also revenge because people have been looking at her so much and in ways she really doesn't want them to mm. that now she's like, oh, you want to look at me? Well, look at me. Um, yeah, she makes them uncomfortable. Linda Hutchin writes that the object of the gaze for Salome is to have ultimate power. I think this is why Salome is so beloved these days, because I think a lot of marginalised people know that feeling of being gazed upon and actually wanting to, to have that on your own terms. To control the gaze, to submit to the gaze, but by controlling when it looks at you when you want it to and seeing and what... How, what it sees as well. Yeah. People want to control when they're looked at, why they're looked at and what what they look like, I guess. Not not what they look like, that sounds... But what they see. Yeah, what is seen. So Salome is, as much as she's dancing for John the Baptist or Yochanan, as in the wild text, I think she's really dancing for herself. Herself and the audience. Yeah, well, so here's the thing. We, the audience, are participating in this game. So are we willingly giving her power or are we as bad as Herod is looking at her? It's one of the interesting parts of the play. Another thing about Oscar Wilde's play on this theme is that other academics, such as Brad Bucknell, have discussed that there's a theme in the play uh, versus the power of visual, of sight, 
versus words because it's a very wordy, um, poetic play where people are constantly talking about how they are looking at each other and what they're looking at. Yeah, in, in fact, the only time when Salome really loses temper is when John the Baptist refuses to look at her and she says over and over and over again, look at me, look at me. I saw you, if you'd seen me, you would have loved me. Yeah. Uh, but at the end, the power of the visual overcomes words, prophecies of Yochanan, the commands of Herod fall second to Salome's actions and what she is seen to be doing, whether that's dancing or um, smooching. Smooching. Smooching a severed head. So maybe this is the time when we talk about actually how Oscar Wilde's play extends everything that's come before. Yes. Well, one thing I want to give Oscar Wilde massive props for is that he is one of the first people to write about Salome from the perspective of like, hey, I wonder what was motivating her. I wonder if she had an interiority in her own desires rather than being a passive receptacle for the desires of her mother and her stepfather. So that's one of the things that drew me to the play uh, initially. Mm -hmm. But he does get demerits for completely following in the tradition of kind of uh, racialization and othering both of the court of Herod, the uh, the orientalist kind of veil imagery in the dance of Salome, and the depiction of almost everyone in the play. There is some Judaism stuff. There is some uh, Nubian stuff. There is... Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. I <laughs> would say a, a number of unique and in-depth cultures are really poorly represented in the wild play, which... Uh, but he also, uh, we've mentioned that his play kind of codified the uh, the dance of the seven veils. He was also not the first person to have Salome kiss the severed head once she was received it, but he moved it to the climax of the play. Rather than being an incidental character detail, this is the sum of Salome's desires and the climax upon reaching those desires is when she starts to realise that maybe killing someone is not the most successful response to having a crush on them. Uh, and that if you kill someone, they can never reciprocate your love. Uh, so, what are you talking about? Whenever I have a crush, I am a murderer. Well, and it's always worked out very well for you. So maybe Oscar Wilde didn't know. Yeah, he, don't, he doesn't know what's up. Yeah, but so to introduce a kind of a character for Salome, he decided that Salome was in love. Everyone around her may be sexual, but she is a romantic. So she does kind of institute a bit of a female gay because she says some raunchy stuff to poor Yochanan about his body. Yeah, Yochanan is 100% not consenting to this experience. And Their romance is not two-sided, no. And just to remind people, Yochanan is John the Baptist. Yes, uh, part of his, well, Oscar Wilde's play was originally written, was trying to be written in England and performed in English, uh, but during that period it was illegal to depict uh, characters from the Bible on stage, never mind characters from the Bible in such a kind of sexy, uh, decadent situation. Mm. So he was forced to move the play to France, uh, translate it into French where it was first performed. It wasn't translated into English until three years later. It wasn't performed in England until many, many years later. And one of the things he did both to emphasize the foreign uh, nature of the play and to escape censure is that John the Baptist is referred to as Yochanan, which is a more Hebrewized uh, version of his name. Mm, mm. Something else that comes out a lot in Oscar Wilde's text, and it's because, I, I mean, if anybody's ever read anything by Oscar Wilde, he loves his melodrama and his purple prose. It's a really musical text, even though it's a straight drama. Mm. And it's not a surprise that it was later turned into an opera because it has these kind of these light motifs, these repeated phrases. Yeah. In fact, Oscar Wilde himself referred to the writing of the play in musical terms, which I just think is a fun fact. Yeah. There's a lot of imagery across his play. There's a lot of parallels between Salome and the moon. Do you love that? Yes. The moon itself, of course, is one of these ancient symbols across many, many cultures, and it, it uh, is codified for many many different things but uh something that i think is quite interesting is across a lot of the kind of biblical and classical myths there is often this insinuation that the moon is how would i phrase it basically menstruation 
Uh, yes, the goddess Artemis, who is the Greek goddess of the moon, has several not quite textual, uh, because it's not something that male historians have ever written about, but some very uh, clear historical hints that she was associated with women getting their first period as a girl. Yeah, exactly. The moon is on a monthly cycle. The cycle, if it's healthy or, I guess, regular, is on a monthly cycle. Mm. I myself have a very... Mm. I don't know if we want to get into it. It's a very <laughs> complex cycle. You're going too deep there, maybe. I'm like, my cycle follows Jupiter's moon and not our moon, which is... My uh, cycle is a lottery. <laughs> yeah. It is because we have turned our backs on the moon, so she has turned up her back on us. It's true. Which technically she could never do because... Uh, we'll never, never see the dark, dark side of the moon. moon. Uh, I just wanted to point that out because, again, obviously it's quite it's quite like a, a binary thing to talk about, which is not necessarily real. But in within the historical context, I guess what why you would compare her to the moon is it it, it illustrates this kind of image of Salome as very mercurial. She's hysterical. She's pubescent and as changeable as the winds, she's impulsive. As Shakespeare would say, the inconstant moon which ever changes in its monthly cycle. Yes, indeed. There is also the suggestion by some academics, such as Christopher Nassar, that he's comparing her to an Anatolian uh, moon goddess called Sibylle, who was uh, from kind of Israel traditions and poetry. Mm. Uh, Sibylle was a Anatolian mother goddess connected to the moon, and she... Uh, was obsessed with preserving her virginity and loved to sexually destroy and murder men. Same. They're both very relatable and uh, kind of has some parallels with Salome in Oscar play. Hell yeah. Oh, man. You know, we can talk quite a lot about, you know, this is real history to do with Salome. This is invented. This isn't real. This is a legend. But mm. what is really great about not just Salome but a number of people we hope to talk about in the future is that they are hugely intertextual they're amazing because their narrative is so built up over so much time yeah there is no definitive version because every version influences what comes next uh they're kind of like a palimpsest which is one of my favorite words to mm. use in can you explain essays. what palimpsest is bonnie a palimpsest is a painting that has been painted over um, sometimes multiple times. Uh, it's originally an art term because canvas was very expensive, so artists would find old works that they no longer liked. They wanted to make a new work, they would paint over the top of it. Um, but in kind of literary or historical terms, it's often used to describe characters or historical figures that our attitudes or our ideas about change over time. They are no longer just one thing. They are a collection of many images changing over time because history never stops. There's no end point to history. Mm. I went to the, the castle in Wales, their big castle in Cardiff, and it started as a 5th century fort. That's the tower in the middle. And then they have Stuart outbuildings they have later periods on the fences and if you go underneath it they have tunnels built during world war ii uh, oh my god of citizens sheltered during the blitz so even though you might say this is a fifth century castle this is a, a Stuart era castle uh what it actually is is a castle that is constantly evolving and continues to have history go around it Really, unless you, like the Acropolis, uh, put up a sign and try, start trying to preserve it, a history of an object is continually ongoing, much like the history of Salome. She's been a minor character in the Bible. She's been a puritanical warning tale. She's been an 18th century figure of intrigue and lust. She's been uh, a literary figure. And now there is a lot of kind of post-feminist readings and attempts to reclaim her. With that in mind, there's a, a quote I'd really, really like to read from a paper by a woman called Megan Becker Leckeron. I love her. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I yeah. hope that her name is pronounced Becca Leckerlo. <laughs> Becca Leckroni, maybe? Or Leckrone. It's the paper's called Salome Copyrighted, the Fetishization of the Textual Corpus. And uh, this was published in 95, the year we were born. Nice. I read it at like 2 a.m. last night and just like lost my mind. Is um, the myth resonates because of this very intertextuality. There must be something to Salome because we recognize her in so many guises. 
She's like Medusa, is like Judith, is like Salambo, is like Ishtar, is like etc. etc. We see so much in Salome because so many writers have seen so much in Salome. Because in writing Salome, so many writers have seen the potential for more narrative. That's a damn good quote. I'm I'm clicking like a slam poet. <laughs> I think that's not only a good quote for Salome, but also a really good quote about yours and mine's interest in kind of canonical women or the readaptation of female characters because there are so many female characters who are kind of iconic they have these large cultural impacts uh but they have been hard done by by you know how they have been written how they've been but there's so much content there and there's so much potential if you are a a female uh creator to dig into all of this I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. It, it I don't sort of feels like, like you're, a, you're an archaeologist in a way. Do you know yeah, exactly. Mean? You've got all of this stuff to dig into and you can try and figure out, like, how would a real woman who has all this act? Or if you don't want to do that, you'd be like, what aspects of this am I interested in? You could be like, what would accurately be a human psychology for Salome? Or you could be like us and be like, God, I would love to just kill and eat a man sexually. <laughs> I think about that every day of my life. Uh, big shout out to Lucky Jew, our poor sweet Yokanan, who was bullied. He was a, just a tender piece of man meat for our artistic work. No, no. I mean, it's fun to joke, but we should really stress that. Uh, I hope that Lucky felt very respected throughout our whole production experience. He was treated very humanely. He now lives on a farm. Uh, yeah. He's, with your grandparents. Yeah, he, we sent him to the farm. He's very happy there. He, he sends us a lot of letters. Yes. And he kept his own severed head as a present. Yeah, it was. it's now in his new house. But now, uh, I feel like this is kind of a nice natural ending to everything we've talked about. I agree as well. Bang an episode, Emma. Yeah. Now, thank you for listening, everyone. If you are listening, recognise that as a first go, this might be a little bit of a patchwork, but if you have... Any uh, people you'd like to hear us discuss in the future, if you have any questions or corrections, please send them through. We'd really love to start up a dialogue with people that love the same things as us. Hell yeah, we're a big fan of intertextuality. Hell yeah. You can contact us at lesfemsdangerous, spelt French-like, <laughs> at gmail.com. And hopefully by the time this episode goes up, we should have the same handle on Twitter. When Bonnie says spelt French-like, it's L-E-S. F-E-M-M-E-S-D-A-N-G-E-R-E-U-S-E. I like that we decided to name our podcast French, even though it is a language neither of us speak with any proficiency. No, any French people out there, we're sorry. Any French people out there, I was going to say something mean about the French. No. I don't mean it. I actually like France a lot. Uh, yeah, we, let's not alienate a, a portion of possible listeners. Um, they'll be the angry at us enough. we want but... to alienate are men. <laughs> I think we're already alienating people by bastardizing the French language. So um, that's true. Uh, thank you to our sound extraordinaire, Errol award-winning uh, Matt Skalitsky, my papa. Um, he is a legend, and he wrote our little jingle. He's gonna. We have to both put him in our wills for this, which is worrying, as he is your father. Yeah, he did. Yeah, context. Uh, he was helping us figure out how to record this last night, and he said. Uh, he had no complaints except that we should put him in our wills, which sounds Actually, like he's going to kill us. make sure this is in the podcast. If we do get very, very successful with this and then we do die, please look into Matt Skalitsky. <laughs> please, please. Please. Dad. Please. Dad. Dad. He's actually in the room with her now. I should do something. But we record across town. No. Uh, so my dad. Well, welcome to the end of the first and last episode of Les Dangerous Ben. <laughs> so uh, just as we end the podcast, our advice is try not to chop off your crush's head. Or do. Who are we to stop you? But if you do, wait till you're not in public to make out with it so you're not Bonnie. put to death. Bonnie. Look. I'm, it's a, it's a highly sexual experience, but you will feel awkward Bonnie. when you have to tongue a polystyrene corpse head in front of your mother. I'm just no. saying. Thank you for listening to Les Femmes Dangerous. I've been Emma Skalitsky. And I've been Bonnie Mary Liston. Now get out of here, Craig. Craig.